the biblical basis of the doctrine of eternal generation of the Son is not based simply on the five places in the Gospel of John and once in the first epistle of John that use the word only begotten. Hmm. Um, I have been, my own research has been focused primarily on that one word. In yeah. Greek, it's the word monogenes, but in the King James Bible and the New American Standard, it's translated as only begotten. Uh, so I'll refer to the word only begotten, but I mean the Greek word monogenes. Um, my, my research is focused on that one word, but that doesn't mean that I think that the whole doctrine stands or falls on that one word. Oh. And I agree with you that there's a broader mosaic that oh. uh, underlies this doctrine. Does doctrine really matter? The Apostle Paul once wrote to a young pastor named Titus, instructing him to hold firm to the trustworthy word he was taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. Welcome to Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters and theological ideas have consequences. Here's your host, Dr. Matthew Barrett, Executive Editor of Credo Magazine and Associate Professor of Christian Theology at Midwestern Seminary. Welcome to the Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters. I am Matthew Barrett, your host. In the next several episodes, I am inviting some of today's top theologians onto the Credo Podcast to discuss the doctrine of the Trinity. I have just published a new book called Simply Trinity, The Unmanipulated Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In this book, I point out that we are experiencing Trinity drift. We have drifted away from the biblical and orthodox doctrine of the Trinity, and my book is meant to help you, help us, recover and retrieve a doctrine of the Trinity that is far more faithful. I invite you to join me in these next episodes as I sit down with these top theologians, and we reflect on the doctrine of the Trinity, not just what we believe, but how it also should affect our worship, our prayer, and so much more. Well, I'm here with uh, Dr. Matthew Barrett, Associate Professor of Christian Theology at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. My name is Charles Lee Irons. I'm the Senior Research Administrator at Charles R. Drew University of Medicine and Science in Los Angeles, and uh, I'm an independent scholar who studies biblical theology. It's great to be here with you, Dr. Barrett, to discuss your new book that is about to come out, Simply Trinity, and uh, looking forward to discussing with you Chapter 7, which uh, deals with the topic of eternal generation. Yeah, it's, it's good to, uh, to be with you as well. Um, I'm really excited about, you know, us being able to talk like this, um, because I know you've, you've done quite a bit of work and research in the past years on this, on this topic of eternal generation. And, uh, so I, I feel a bit, uh, uh, I, I'm look, really looking forward to, to hearing from you as well. Good. So eternal generation is, uh, an interesting phrase. Uh, explain to us what is eternal generation, and yeah. especially the word generation. Eternal, we pretty much know, but what yeah. does generation refer to? Yeah, you know, it can be a, a strange uh, concept 
um, when we're to, to Christians today who are um, maybe they they're not used to using this language uh, either in the pastorate or the church or even in the academy. Uh, I we we can get into this, but there's all kinds of, of reasons for that. Uh, the language has almost disappeared in mm-hmm. um, for a long time from our vocabulary, which I think if you go back in history would have just been inconceivable. I mean, if we would have, you know, we, if we go back in time and, you know, could have said to one of the fathers, patristic medieval reformation, it would, it almost wouldn't matter that this language of begetting or eternal generation, there would come a day when it was foreign to Christians. Uh, they would have just been, I think they would have been baffled by it hmm. and uh, a bit shocked and wanted to know more. Why is this happening? Um, you know, you've obviously done a lot in this area. I mean, I, I, I could think, for example, of just Bible, Christians who read their Bible are just not going to see it anymore. Mm-hmm. But uh, to answer your question, you know, what what is eternal generation or, or sometimes we call it the eternal begetting? of the son. Well, it really uh, comes back to the very names that scripture gives to us, the names father and son. I think sometimes we hear, we, we just hear those names so much, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. That we rarely stop to think, well, what, why, why are they called father and, and son, these persons? What, mm-hmm. what does that even mean? And, uh, of course, the, the scriptural context, but even in our own, you know, human context, uh, the, I, the whole concept of begetting is actually not that foreign when we think about it. Um, when we talk about begetting, uh, well, here we're talking about the idea of coming forth from uh, someone or something. Mm-hmm. When we're talking about persons in, in our own human experience begetting or generating this type of language is very uh familial uh in other words it it brings us to those categories of uh, a father and a son for example so that uh a a son well was it mean for a son to be a son it means that this son is from his father and um but as you pointed out when we uh when this concept is this language is used of of god the eternal infinite incomprehensible god uh well there's there's still that truth there but of course we have to be quick to qualify what we do and do not mean Mm -hmm. uh, lest we just assume whatever's true in our human begetting is just straight across true of of god himself that that would be quite dangerous yeah. and would certainly domesticate God and, and humanize God or, or historicize God in all kinds of ways. So when we refer to this idea of eternal generation, we're simply uh, referring to the fact that the Son is from the Father, but from all eternity. Uh, there never was a time when the Son, when the Father was without his Son, um, there never was a time when the son was not son or the father not father. Uh, if we wanted to be a bit more uh, Nicene in our vocabulary, we could say something like, from all eternity, the son is begotten 
uh, from the Father's essence. And that might be a bit more specific and yeah. theological to say, um, yes, this is a begetting. It, it identifies the eternal uh, origin or the eternal relation of origin of the Son um, from the Father, of course. But, um, but since this is the eternal Son that, that we are referring to, we, we immediately have to qualify that, well, uh, contrary to Arianism and subordinationism, this is this is not um, this is not you know um, univocal with our human uh, right. getting. So, uh, how would you? I, I, you know, I'd be curious. You've done a, a lot on this. I mean, how, how in the past when maybe it's a churchgoer or a student approaches you and says, "What is this?" this idea concept you're talking about eternal generation or begetting, what, what do you say to them? Well, one thing that I try to explain right at the beginning is that uh, the word generation is a little bit abstract for us as English speakers. And it might help if we realize that that word is just from Latin and it's just the Latin word for begetting. Yeah. And so Eternal generation is the same thing as saying eternal begetting, yeah, uh, or even eternal sonship. You could almost say, mm. um, and so that kind of helps to sort of ease into it a little bit, so it doesn't sound so. For some reason, these Latin-based English words are so formal and almost philosophical that they kind of put us off a little bit. But if we just realize, no, there's nothing special about putting it in Latin. It's just. Uh, yeah. It's just an ordinary way of explaining that there's this father-son relationship in which the father has a son. Uh, sometimes there's another word that we use in English that might be helpful, although it's kind of agricultural, but it's the word sire. Oh. Right? When a father sires a son, usually that's used in the agricultural context in English. Yeah. But, you know, like a horse or something. But... Uh, Siring is interesting because it sort of focuses on the father's role in having offspring. Okay. Right. So a mother doesn't sire a child, only a father sires a child. So using that metaphor, that kind of helps a little bit to focus even more specifically on what we're talking about. Mm. So, um, so it's basically a metaphor. It's a metaphor from, ordinary human experience that we're yeah. using as an analogy to understand the Trinity. And of course, as you said, you have to maintain the distinction between God as the infinite creator and yeah. the creatures. So there's all kinds of differences between right. human begetting and eternal begetting, but there's still that analogical relationship that kind of helps us to get a foothold yeah. here to understand what the scriptures are trying to say. Yeah. So that's how I usually approach it. Yeah. The, um, go ahead. Well, I was just going to ask you if you had any thoughts about uh, the, what is the, what is the best way of trying to understand the scriptural basis of this doctrine? Like, yeah. is it, is it just based on the phrase, 
only begotten, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son? Or is there something broader that helps us to kind of fit everything together to understand this as a, a, a deeply rooted scriptural concept? Yeah, that, that question right there, um, I think you've, you've hit a, a nerve. Yeah. <laughs> if I can put it that way, because um, when, when we ask, well, why, why is this concept so foreign to us today? I think one reason, there, there's probably many reasons, but one reason is that when Christians today talk about it, um, they, they sometimes then go to the Bible, to the scriptures, with, with a certain methodology. Right. Um, in my experience, and, and this is uh, something you can see in a lot of literature, by even by evangelicals, um, the doctrine is approached in a very atomized manner. Um, so we we just assume, oh, we need to to go to a specific verse, and uh, there we're going to find the doctrine of eternal generation. Yeah, um, this type of approach is well, it will leave people very disappointed, right? <laughs> <laughs> or Worse, it will uh, it'll leave people suspicious, yep. and they may even reject the doctrine altogether because yep. they they may they, they feel like they uh, can't find that uh, chapter and verse for it. Um, one of the things that I uh, try to to point out in in simply Trinity is that I think we're going about it all wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, it certainly is the case that yes, we we do need. And I do this in the book. Uh, we we do need to look at specific passages, absolutely. Uh, and I spend quite a bit of time doing that. However, before we get there, we need to kind of take a step back right. and ask ourselves the question: Well, how how is not just the eternal generation, but just the, the doctrine, the Trinity? How is it revealed to us? Um, when we ask that question, we discover: Well, it's not revealed to us in the way we we might think, or the way we might approach other doctrines, um, it's, it's revealed to us a bit more holistically. Mm-hmm. Um, so when we think about, you know, just our, our conversation just now about the very names, uh, we could ask, well, why, why does the script, why do the scriptures and the new Testament in particular reveal uh, these persons by these names? The names seem to say something. And it, as you just pointed out with father and son, uh, that communicates quite a lot, and actually, the the very uh, the very essence of uh, well, probably shouldn't use that word. The very concept <laughs> of of eternal generation itself is um, is it's, it's embedded in those those names, Father and yeah. Son. Right. I think that's important to point out. I mean, it feels almost too too simple to say, but I think it's important to point out because I think our tendency today is to uh, look at father, son, in our human society, and to make and and to make all kinds of assumptions about uh, how we might define father and son in, in terms of functionality or social engagement. And the danger there is then we can read those back onto the mm-hmm. eternal father, son, and then just assume that's what it means to be mm-hmm. father and son, and yeah. then we completely miss 
the one thing it does mean, which which comes back to this concept of begetting itself. Um, the other thing I'll, I'll mention is when we open the scriptures, uh, we see uh, something like eternal generation revealed in a very natural way. Um, the authors don't just come out and say, here it is, hmm. right? Rather, uh, tied to the storyline of scripture, they, re- they, they lay before us the missions of, mm-hmm. of the persons of the Trinity, right. the missions of Father, Son, and Spirit. Uh, the beautiful thing about this, this way of um, describing the triune God is, uh, obviously, this has a lot to do with our salvation, Mm-hmm. Um, that these missions are are there for the sake of our redemption, but as these missions are are uh, the layers are peeled back, we then realize, oh, these these missions actually are meant to point us to the eternal, imminent life of God, and mm-hmm. this distinction, right. um, uh, one of them being uh, eternal generation, so that when we see that the, the Father sends His Son for the sake of our salvation, um, the biblical authors intend for us to then say, oh, this this is true, this is fitting, this corresponds, because this is the same Son who is begotten from that same Father uh, from all eternity, apart from the world, apart from creation, and salvation altogether. So the names, the missions, and then certainly uh, we can get into this um, in a minute, but uh, certainly then the biblical authors feel quite comfortable alluding in countless ways uh, to this doctrine of eternal generation. I like to call it a mosaic. Mm-hmm. Um, it's uh, if, if you go to the scriptures and you just think, I'm just going to look for one title or one particular passage, uh, you, you actually miss out on the beautiful diversity and mosaic of the way the, the biblical authors choose to really uh, present a, a feast before us. And so we see this in all kinds of ways from John's gospel, where he, he likes to just use the language of begetting itself. Uh, to Paul, um, uh, who will talk about the Son as the image. Um, later, to the Corinthians, uh, he'll also talk about Christ as the wisdom. I think he's pulling there from Proverbs. Right. Um, Matthew's gospel uh, t- seems to echo that language of, of Micah, ancient of days. Uh, and Hebrews, we can't forget Hebrews, of course. Hebrews 1, at the very beginning, yeah. when it appeals to Psalm 2. Uh, not only describes Christ as the radiance, uh, radiance of, of the glory of God, but then uh, will will then turn to the Psalms, not just to say a, a lot about the mission of the Son, but the eternal origin of the Son, and it does so in a in a, just an extraordinary extraordinary way. Yeah, I, I I could go on, but I, I would like to hear from you because. Uh, you've written uh, on this topic, and you've made a, a really key observation that has to has more to do with translations. Mm-hmm. And I would love for for I'd love to hear, but for the sake of our our viewers as well, I'm sure they would love to hear. You know, when they open their Bibles, right? They go home, they open their Bibles. 
many contemporary versions, when they open a gospel like John, they're just not going to see begetting language there. Yeah, that wasn't that wasn't always the case. So, so maybe you could help us understand why has this language? Maybe you could just take some time and walk us through a little bit of the history here. Why is this yeah. language beginning just disappeared from our translations? Yeah, it is unfortunate. Um, but first, before I explain that, I just want to say that I totally agree with what you had, what you've just said, that the biblical basis of the doctrine of eternal generation of the son is not based simply on the five places in the gospel of John and once in the first epistle of John that use the word only begotten. Mm. Um, I have been, my own research has been focused primarily on that one word in yeah. Greek. It's the word monogenes, but in the King James Bible and the new American standard, it's translated as only begotten. Uh, so I'll refer to the word only begotten, but I mean the Greek word monogenes. Um, my, my research is focused on that one word, but that doesn't mean that I think that the whole doctrine stands or falls on that one word. Oh. And I agree with you that there's a broader mosaic that yeah. uh, underlies this doctrine. And even if we didn't have the word monogenes in the New Testament, we still have all this other context. We have the father-son language. We have uh, especially the, the one you mentioned from Hebrews 1, 3. Yeah. That he's the radiance of the glory of God. That's very clear. Mm. But... I do think that the issue of translation is very important, and it may have contributed to uh, some of the general lack of confidence in the last, you know, 100 years or so, yeah. the last 50 years, maybe, lack of confidence that this doctrine is biblical. Mm. The fact that uh, beginning in 1946, the Revised Standard Version, the New Testament was published in 1946. The full Bible was published a few years later. But in 1946, the RSV was the first major English version that dropped begotten. Yeah. Up until that point, everyone used either the King James Bible or the, um, the first major revision of that that was done in 1885, the English Standard Version, well, the English, it wasn't the English Standard, but it was the English Revised Version, I believe. Uh, and that, all of the, so from the King James Bible in 1611, all the way up until the late 19th century, and then into the early 20th, everyone just saw only begotten in their Bibles. Yeah. And they never questioned it. And so it would be easy for that for Christians in that time period to say eternal generation, eternal begetting is biblical. Yeah. But uh, after the RSV came out with that, it did create some controversy, although most of the controversy over the RSV was focused on other passages. But that particular translation did create some controversy. But eventually it took hold. And uh, after the RSV, you have the NIV, mm. which came out in the 1970s. I think, was it 1978 was the first edition so. of it? 
the NIV also followed suit. And then of course the NIV was the first major English translation that started this whole trend of new contemporary translations of the Bible. And then the floodgates were open yeah. And almost all of the major English versions that have come out since then in the in the last 20 or 30 years have have dropped begotten. And the reason for it was because uh, the scholars at that time, so going back to the original RSV, the scholars at that time believed that monogenes had been mistranslated. Mm. You can hear that. You can hear in that word mono, which means only, and then genes, the genes ending. Uh, they thought that the genes ending didn't mean begotten, but it had to do with a different Greek root that had to do with kind. Oh. And so they said monogenes doesn't mean only begotten. It means only one of his kind. Mm. And so therefore they said we should translate it as unique or as only and just leave out the begotten concept. So that's where we're at. And then uh, what I've done in my research is to say, is that really the case? And so going back to not only uh, the etymology, but also looking at the usage of this word in extra biblical Greek, just regular old, you know, Hesiod and Aeschylus and Plato and so on, non-biblical secular Greek to see how is this word used. And what I discovered was that uh, while there are definitely examples that could be found where monogenes can only be translated as unique, there are also plenty of other cases where it's being used in a familial context, as you said, yeah. and it clearly means only child in the sense of not having any siblings. And so the translation only begotten, then how the question of then how should we translate the word when we see it in the Gospel of John right. has to be determined by context. Is it a familial context or is it something else? So the other the examples where it means unique, it's always in a non-familial context. Okay. Like uh, Galen, the medical writer, will refer to the liver as a unique organ. Okay. Or uh Clement will refer to the phoenix as a unique creature because there's no other species like it or something. Uh, and so it's clearly not referring to the father-son relationship. There's no familial context there. Yeah. But so in those cases, unique is the proper translation. But is that the context in John? No, clearly not. In John, it's a familial context. Yeah. Every single one of the five occurrences of monogenes, John 1, 14, John 1, 18, John 3, 16, John 3, 18, and 1 John 4, 9, they're all the father-son relationship. Yeah. So it does make sense to translate as only begotten in those cases. Yeah, you, you mentioned context. And yeah. uh, I mean, you, you know this more than I do because you're really living in that world. Uh, I'm over here trying to, um, you know, work through so many of the theological uh, repercussions, but you're doing yeah. some excellent uh, biblical scholarship 
actually digging into uh, the context itself, I think this would be important to talk about because uh, when we, whenever, when we, we, we assume this, right, when we use words, when we use a word, well, word can mean a number of things. Um, how, how do we determine what, what definition we use? Um, well, context, uh, the context yeah. of that word in a sentence, in a paragraph, uh, when we're talking like this, we, 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 we may use a word that could mean different things, the same word, uh, yeah. but the, the context in which we are referring to it uh, is definitive. When we, for some reason, when we open the, the scriptures, maybe this is just a matter mm-hmm. of, you know, needing to, to be kind of retrained in how to read a text. But when we open the scriptures, we, we sometimes forget that. And uh, we forget that, well, when we're looking at, at, at a word, the context is actually quite crucial to, to deciding how, how, how is this to be interpreted? Yeah. Um, you've mentioned, of course, those uses, usages in John's gospel, but even in other, uh, other texts in John, um, well, even, if, even if the word itself is not used, Mm-hmm. The idea seems to right. seems to be present. Um, I think, uh, for example, of a, of a passage like John five, in which uh, Jesus gets himself in all kinds of trouble <laughs> uh, because he makes this um, just bold bold claim. After he performs this miracle, this this healing of a crippled man on the Sabbath, he makes this bold claim that, well, as the as my father is working until now, so am I. Mm-hmm. And uh, the religious leaders seem to understand at least something of what he is actually saying. Um, there's all kinds of discussions as to, uh, you know, exactly. Uh, in Jewish literature, exactly how to understand uh, God's activity uh, after mm-hmm. creation. Um, I think that there's at least agreement that, uh, yes, he rested uh, after creating, but uh, nonetheless, he is the creator. So he continues to sub- sustain and uphold the world. Um, it's possible that uh, that, uh, type of background could be present in this whole pretty uh, fierce dialogue yeah. between Jesus and the religious leaders as, as he's saying, yes, I know it's the Sabbath, <laughs> but but who am I? And uh, who who, uh, who is it that uh, mm-hmm. sustains and even heals his, his creation um, even on, on the Sabbath? Uh, their reaction seems to say, okay, they understand he's saying something about divinity here. And uh, he's saying something about his father mm-hmm. in a way that, that we wouldn't. Uh, so that, that being the case, I mean, if you keep reading in John 5, it's this con- context then that uh, becomes so important for when Jesus then makes you know the ultimate statement that just as the father has life in himself, uh, so he has granted the son life in himself. Um, in the past, uh, in 
commentators have looked at that and um, kind of pretty quickly glossed over it. Uh, more recently, though, um, these in John's gospel, I, like you're saying, the context seems to say, well, this is a familial father-son right. type of uh, context. Yeah. Could you, I mean, is your thinking through um, this language of begetting, uh, maybe, you know, we see it immediately in John 1. Um, John starts off talking about the word, but then... Mm-hmm. As he as he continues, he then moves to this type of language of father language, of son language, a very uh, begetting language. Uh-huh. By the time you get to John five, it's just it's almost like John. Uh, uh-huh. This is just the context in which he operates uh, as he then starts to introduce Jesus and Jesus's uh-huh. major statements about his eternal origin from the Father. Yeah. What maybe you could speak to this? What what is going on here with context, and how how is it so crucial? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the arguments uh, that some of the I call them revisionist scholars, the ones that don't agree with the translation "only begotten" and want to translate it as "only." One of the arguments that they make, and it's a it's a false argument, but one of the arguments they make is that. Nowhere else in the writings of John is there any reference to the father begetting the son. Mm. And it, wow. it seems to me that John 5.26 is pretty clear. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, what does it mean for a father to give life to a son? Yeah. It doesn't use the word beget. It uses mm. the different construction of to give life. But what does that mean for a father to give life to a son? Isn't that the concept of begetting? (laughs) So it seems, it seems obvious to me that you do have, that there is this context in the gospel of John of this father son relationship, not just in terms of a relationship of love or a relationship of authority, but something we could even say ontological of the father giving life to the son and the son claiming that he has divine power and authority Mm. because of that relationship, because of that relationship of origin, not a relationship of love per se, that is part of it, but it's a relationship of origin or relation of origin, maybe even as a better way to put it to get us, get away from the sort of social Trinitarian implications of the word relationship. The word relationship is so overused in theology. It bothers me, but yeah, anyway, (laughs) Uh, relation of origin is more accurate. Um, yeah, so the context of the whole Gospel of John is, in my opinion, it is very clear, like you said, that this is a major issue. Yeah. Uh, I mean, even going back to what you said before, which I thought was brilliant, I had never really thought about this before, but you, you're focusing on John five seventeen, where yeah. Jesus says, my father is working until now, and I am working. And immediately it says, verse 18, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So it's very clear that he's referring to his relationship to the father and calling himself the son of the father isn't focused 
solely on the relational aspect of that. It's focused on the ontological implications of that. And the fact that he is making himself equal with God because of his claim to originate from God in this ontological way that sets him on the creator side of the creator creature distinction. And so the whole context then is just so powerful in making it clear that the, uh, the father son relationship in the gospel of John has an ontological focus that really does confirm the concept of eternal generation in, in the sense of being begotten from the father's essence. So, yeah. So, so important, right? I mean, so, so crucial. It, it makes me think that um, when we come to a passage like John 5, we, you know, we, we really could use some help. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it, when we look at the fathers, I mean, their exegesis, it's, it's not only lengthy, yeah. But they seem to understand exactly what you just said that yeah. uh, John the the, lang- the this language seems to very much assume and and it, and even create controversy with Jesus uh, because it is ontological. Yeah. Um, and I think this is one of the reasons why then they feel so comfortable uh, not only referring to eternal generation to say, this is why we call him son, mm-hmm. and this is why we then call the father, father. This is his, as you just mentioned, his eternal relation of origin. Mm-hmm. Um, but then they also feel just as comfortable to sort of flip that coin over to the other side and say, uh, on, on the basis of, of this type of language in John 5, oh, this is also why Jesus seems to think he is equal uh, to his yeah. father. Yeah. Um, so it's and not, that that claim is is blasphemous, you know, in their mind. Right. You're claiming to be God. It's like you got to pick up stones. If 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 he if he is if his claim is false, yeah. if he really is not the eternal Son of God in the sense of being equal with God, then yeah, you ought to pick up stones right there on the spot. I mean, that's that's blasphemy. So, they seem to understand. Yeah. Something of that. Um, there's been discussions over, you know, do they understand that in full part? Well, regardless, they they understand enough to 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 say Jesus is saying something, right? Um, saying something very ontological here. Yeah. Another interesting thing that that I noticed in the church fathers is going back to John one. So the first yeah. two occurrences of monogenes in John one fourteen uh, and John one eighteen. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the father, full of grace and truth. Mm. And then verse 18, no one has ever seen God, the only begotten God who is at the father's side. He has made him known. Those two occurrences of only begotten are in the context of, again, going back to this issue of context, which is so critical. Uh, Just like you saw how John 526 is in the context of this discussion over um, what Jesus claimed to to be equal with the Father because of that claim in verse 17 that my Father is working and I am working as well. Same thing here in John 1 because mm. of the context of verse 3. Right. 
where you have the clear creator creature distinction and then john in the prologue places the word on the creator side of the creator creature distinction and says all things were made through him yeah and without him was not anything made that was made and so now at this point he hasn't used the word only begotten he's just used the word the word he's calling him the word and saying that that god made all things through the word Mm. but that places the word on the creator side of the creator creature distinction so that then when you follow through the text and you come to verse 14 and it says and the word the same word that we just talked about in verse 3 that was on the creator side uh, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory glory as of the only begotten right Right. And so that then tells you that he's begotten, not made. Yeah. Because he's the creator, not the creature. Yeah. And so the church fathers, in my reading of the church fathers, this seemed to be this context here of John 1, 3, tied to John 1, 14 and 18, seemed to be the basis, not the only basis, but a major part of the basis for their claim in the Nicene Creed that he's begotten and not made. Yeah. I couldn't agree with you more. Um, I, how you just walked us through John one. Uh, I, I hope people will take note of that because uh, th- th- going back to the fourth century, right? This was yeah. the major exegetical divide yeah. was what side of creation is he, is he on is, are we yeah. putting him with the creator or the creature? John assumes right out of the gate, he makes it very clear. And uh, I think the fathers are right then as they sort of inch up on, you know, verses 14 and 15, which are then going to start introducing this father-son language. But even before that, right out of the gate, they're noticing, oh, he's he's actually uh, identifying the son mm-hmm. as... Uh, the word, uh, he's using that language, as the, the very one who is with God, who was God. This is not, um, so So that when he then uses the language of cre- creating through the, his son, it's not as if, uh, like Arius thought, well, this is a subordinate right. uh, type of being. No, this is, uh, well, as the father's like to say, the father uh created uh through his son by his spirit they 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 have no room for that type of subordination's move no they have no room and the text is explicit that all things were made through him that is through the word and without him was not anything made that was made yeah so if he's if he's a creature if he's one of the things that was made then it would it would become self-referential and he would be making himself through Mm. right so it's not possible it's the text itself rules out any kind of concept that the word is a created being even if he's the most glorious first creature that god made and he's almost greater than an angel and just the most godlike creature but he's still on the created side of the creator creature distinction according to arianism and that doesn't that doesn't solve your problem so 
yeah, to me, John 1, 3 sets the whole context for not just the rest of the prologue, but even John 5, like you were mm. saying. Mm. So it's critical. Yeah, absolutely. Maybe, um, and we've been talking about John's gospel, and uh, boy, we could we could go on, couldn't we? Uh, we talk about John 3, um, John 10. There's so so much. You know, so much and is John's gospel is just so rich for these very reasons, not just in terms of Christology, but Trinitarian theology. Mm-hmm. Maybe we could uh, transition to Paul uh, as okay. well to, to sort of pull back uh, the the curtain on this this mosaic just a little bit more. Um, uh, we may not be able to, to get to see the whole mosaic just in our conversation. But if we go to, to Paul, for example, in Colossians 1, or uh, we could even talk about the author of Hebrews. Mm-hmm. In Hebrews 1, here again, in different ways, we see similar, if not the same uh, type of uh, concepts and, and points that uh, John, John was making. Yeah. Um, well, it's interesting because Colossians 1, 15, he's the image of the invisible God, for by him all things were created. Hebrews 1, 3, actually verse 2 first, you know, that uh, through whom all things were made, right? God has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. And then verse 3, he's the radiance of the glory of God. So in both of those just like in John 1, yeah. you have this issue of all things being created through the second person of the Trinity. And then immediately in that context, like the next verse or the next line, some kind of statement about eternal generation. Yeah. Right? Radiance, image. But it's right in the context of saying that through him, all things were created. That's right. Putting him on the creator side. Yeah. So he's not a creature. And so, therefore, this eternal generation concept, whether it's defined as sonship or radiance or image or however, whatever metaphor you want to use, is clearly stating his ontological origin, that he is begotten from the Father's essence Mm. and is therefore has the same essence and the same nature as the Father. Yeah. Yeah, you know, the language that, that... The author of Hebrews and then Paul, the language that they use is so strategic. Yeah. As well. Like you're saying, not only does it uh, make it very clear um, this the the eternal uh, origin, the eternal relational origin of the Son, but in a different way from John, the same concept is is present. Um and like you said, with, with different metaphors, I, I mean, I take Hebrews, for example, um, this, this concept of radiance. Again, I, I sometimes worry that we use it so uh, flippantly. Mm-hmm. Um, it, you know, even in our own church settings that we, we don't actually stop and ask ourselves, well, what does this actually say about the sun? Um if we go back to and start digging through some of the exegesis of, of our fathers or look at 
uh, the Nicene Creed, for example, mm-hmm. they seem to allude to it everywhere. Yeah. Um, you think of the creed where it says after, you know, it's, this is in the context of the creed's affirmation of eternal generation. And it's, it has this three words where it says light, he is light of light. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it, it'll also speak of him as true God of true God and, and, and um, all kinds of other ways. But why, why this phrase light of light um, I, I think they are picking up on this this very concept, yeah. this, this very language that he is the radiance, the radiance of this divine glory. And if that doesn't communicate, if that doesn't convey, in its own way, this concept of this eternal relation, this uh, in, in John's language, this eternal begetting, I don't know what what will. Um, and of course, it, it, it certainly conveys uh, not just uh, Hebrews will go on to, to then use the language of sonship, right? Um, so it's, it's obviously going to, the author is going to distinguish the son as son, but right from the beginning, as you mentioned, to describe him as the radiance of the glory of God. Well, this is, this is saying something about uh, his equality with the father, it's fascinating, and maybe we, we can talk talk about this too. Uh, the context of Hebrews one, right, is so fascinating because there seems to be a really specific agenda here. Uh, Why all this talk of angels, for example? You know, as you start to get uh, further into Hebrews yeah. one, he, the author seems really bent on showing, demonstrating. No, this is not. Uh, another creature. This is not even another angelic being. He's not subordinate in any of those ways. Rather, uh, this is the very radiance of divine glory. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think in in that context, the author of Hebrews, in order to show the son's superiority over the angelic beings, um, he's the author is also then bringing us into the context of eternity itself. Yeah. Uh, sometimes we miss that because, you know, obviously he, the rest of Hebrews is going to have a lot to say about history, right? Redemptive history and priesthood and sacrifice and temple. And um, that's going to be a, a large part of its focus, but not all that unlike John's gospel the author starts off yeah. talking about metaphysics. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> yeah, and isn't it interesting that in that eternal metaphysical, ontological rooted opening, he's going to transition from radiance language to then begetting language to, to out of Psalm 2. Yeah. Um, what's, I mean, this is, I mean, there's, Hebrews is just overwhelming. You can see there's just so much going on. Why, why introduce begetting language uh, out of out of Psalm two? What are you your thoughts on that? Well, it is interesting that he he quotes Psalm two seven. You are my son. Today I've begotten you in verse five, but he also quotes it again. In chapter five, 
and verse 5. And in both contexts, it seems to be setting the context for the incarnation. It's yeah. similar to John 1, where you start off with the pre-existent son, the pre-existent word, and then you turn to, then the word became flesh. And uh, I think you see something similar in Hebrews of focusing on the eternal generation of the son yeah. and then turning to incarnation and how, you know, Hebrews 2 focuses a lot on incarnation uh, that, you know, this whole issue of since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. Also in Hebrews 5, after affirming the eternal generation of the son, then it says, but then in the days of his flesh, <laughs> verse 7 of chapter 5, and it you know, talks about his agony in the garden of Gethsemane and then how he learned obedience through the things that he suffered so that he could become the source of eternal salvation and become our great high priest. So it seems like the author of Hebrews is doing basically what, what the gospel of John is doing, which is starting off with who is this? He's the, we're, we can focus on the historical side first because that's our experience of it. The Messiah has come into the world. He lived a perfect life. He died on the cross for our sins. He rose again. He seated at the right hand of God. But who is this person? Who is this savior, this mediator, this high priest? Well, to really understand that, you have to go back before the incarnation to his eternal relationship to the Father. And then that anchors him in this eternal ontological relationship yeah. so that we have a savior who is fully human, but also fully divine. And that power that he brings in our salvation. Yeah. He's not only the author of creation, he's the author of the new creation. Right. You know, right. you know, so. this, uh, this transition you're talking about, I, I just, I think it's so important, right? Um, you know, when in Hebrews one, you know, you start to feel that transition taking in place. Yeah. But um, the, within the context there, when he when when the author then goes back to Psalm two, right? If, if, and when we look at Psalm two um, again, it's such a again, this is such a rich passage where um, you have a conversation taking place, really, in which uh, God is then speaking uh, uh, and describing the the reign and the rule and the victory. That he's going to to uh, to give to his anointed one, mm-hmm. but uh, it's almost as if uh, David is uh, overhearing, if we could put it that way, um, not just a, a conversation that has implications for salvation history. It certainly does, and Psalm two, the rest of Psalm two is going to make that clear. But David seems to indicate he's overhearing a a divine conversation, um, one in which uh, transcends our our time, space, universe, and history itself. Uh, and as he then introduces that language of, um, in Psalm 2, you are my son, today I have begotten you, um, like you're indicating, there, there seems to be something more there than, than just Oh, this has to do with you know what's what's going to take place in terms of kingship 
and and uh, the reign and rule. No, this 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 seems to be uh, referring to something eternal, even something that transcends that that entire context. Now, I, I do have to admit to you, uh, I'm cheating a little bit here uh, because I I do have Augustine uh, sitting here in front of me, and uh, I I can't help but but look at um, how he how he looks at this passage, right? Um, it, if you don't mind, I'll just read, it's just a couple sentences. I just ha- I can't resist. Um, he says this, he says, the word today denotes the, and here he's talking about that language, right, of Psalm 2, where uh, today I've begotten you. He, he says, well, what does this mean? If David's overhearing this divine, eternal conversation with ramifications for history and salvation, what does this mean, though, in terms of the son's identity? He says this, the word today denotes the actual present, and as in eternity, nothing is past as if it had ceased to be, nor future as if it had not yet come to pass, but all is simply present since whatever is eternal is ever in being. Uh, the words today I've begotten you are to be understood of the divine generation. In this phrase, the Orthodox Catholic belief proclaims the eternal generation of the power and wisdom of God, who is the only begotten Son. Wow. I, that is a remarkable statement yes, by Augustine. It is. He's basically, he's basically saying, uh, don't be too quick to think yeah. that this begetting is just uh, uh, the Father sending the Son as King and Messiah and, and anointed one in history. Augustine is saying, hold on, yeah. Uh, this this eternal conversation that David's overhearing, uh, this this says something about the son's eternal relation of origin prior bef- before creation and salvation altogether. And then he 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 gets you know he goes gets to John on us right where where he starts to use the language of beginning and even wisdom, which is very Pauline, yeah. in Proverbs eight and First um, Corinthians, where Paul starts to use this language of wisdom as well. Anyway, I had to cheat there uh, and bring in Augustine to our conversation. <laughs> well, that's one of the things I appreciate about your book, because I, I recognized that quote as soon as you started reading it. I said, I think I yeah. just read that yesterday. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it was in your book. <laughs> yeah. So you pulled together so many great quotes from the church yeah. fathers yeah. that um, really helped to, it's not that you're quoting them as authoritative, you're saying Obviously, we believe in sola scriptura, but you're saying that let's listen to how our uh, heroes in the faith who have gone before us, how they read the scriptures. Mm. And sometimes they bring to bear a certain perspective and a certain way of connecting certain verses together and a certain way of looking at them in terms of their basic metaphysical commitments i think that's a big part of it because they approach things with a more metaphysical uh framework than we do we we focus as moderns on history but they think about eternity and metaphysics and ontology a little bit more and that helps to shed light on what the scriptures are saying and suddenly you realize wow yeah you once you reframe it in that perspective yeah, it is there in the text. You know, yeah. I see it now. Yeah. I didn't see it before because I'm looking at it from my modern historical lens. But when I put on the lens of the church fathers, I see it. It makes sense. 
Yeah. It's not, it's not an alien imposition on the text. It is in the text. Yeah. Yeah. So. Well, uh, that might be just the right uh, note to sound as we conclude our, our conversation here. Uh, I mean, there's so much more we could talk about, right? I mean, we've talked a lot about John. We've kind of uh, just barely gotten into uh, Hebrews 1 and Psalm 2. Uh, you mentioned, of course, Colossians 1, where it talks about Christ as the image of the invisible God. Um, others, I mean, may, maybe those those watching want to dig deeper. They could certainly uh, spend time reading Proverbs 8 and the way that uh, the Son is re- also referred to as the wisdom of God. Uh, and how fascinating, right, that this is the same language that Paul will use when he refers to Christ mm-hmm. as the wisdom of God yeah. when he's writing to the Corinthians. That's right. I don't, um, that doesn't seem to be accidental. And of course, knowing Paul, he's, he is, uh, he's not going to uh, take an Arian reading of, <laughs> of Proverbs 8. Uh, we know who he thinks this son is. Um or maybe some of our, our viewers want to look at uh, Micah chapter 5, mm-hmm. this incredible language of ancient of days. Uh, and isn't it interesting when you open Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter mm-hmm. 2, yeah. uh, who is this ancient of days? Well, it's none other, it's none other than Jesus Christ. And Micah seems to think that this, this is the ancient of days from, from eternity, that say, says volumes about, you know, the way that Matthew then just assumes, right? It almost in passing right. just assumes this language of, of this, uh, this newborn Messiah. Uh, of course, uh, so much of this, right, has to do with the gospel. I mean, you've kind of hinted at that in various ways. We're not just talking about a doctrine uh, for the sake of the doctrine itself, but uh, hopefully people can sense that Mm-hmm. So when you get to the Gospels or the epistles, as they present the gospel, this is this is essential. Uh, this is really, really key. Uh, and, and you almost get the impression that if you don't if, if you if you don't have this foundation, if they don't have this foundation, John one, Hebrews one, Colossians one, um, well, the gospel of the Son is not uh you, you're going to miss out if we can put that way on yeah. the great riches it, it gives to us um but i i guess the last thing i i, I want to say is you know we've been talking about simply trinity but i would love to uh point people to to your work um you've written a chapter in a book called retrieving eternal generation Mm-hmm. What's the name of the chapter title? It's called A Lexical Defense of the Johannine Only Begotten. Okay. Yeah. Chapter I, 5. Chapter 5. Um, this is in a book by uh, Scott Swain, edited by Scott Swain and Fred Sanders. Right. And yeah. so look for... Um, chapter five by uh, by Irons in that book, 
Uh, I've read it, I think, twice now. And um, your some of the insights you've brought up in this conversation come through there as well. And it is, uh, it's worth, it's worth your time. I, uh, there's more coming out. Uh, if I can uh, hint at this, um, you are also writing a chapter for a book I'm editing uh, on the Doctrine of Trinity with IVP Academic that is looking at the, uh, the biblical witness to this doctrine of eternal generation building on your past research but but of course uh expanding it even more and i'm um i'm also i think i can say this uh i I, i'm also really glad to hear that you're uh you're working on a book project as well yes and so we're looking forward to that yep doing more research on my only begotten and in the church fathers and uh hopefully it'll be a I want to. My my main concern is I feel that the uh, these English versions that we have now, beginning yeah. with the RSV and continuing with all the plethora of modern English versions that leave out begotten, is that they are now out of sync with the Nicene Creed. Yeah, and then that raises the question of then is the Nicene Creed unbiblical? Yeah, to not only refer to the son as only begotten, but then to make a big deal out of it and say mm. begotten, not made. And therefore he's light of light. And therefore he's homoousios with the father of the same substance. It seems like they're hanging the whole argument on it, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. so if our English Bibles and our creed are out of sync with each other, that creates a disconnect that is going to make people wonder if the creed is even is even right. Yeah. And so maybe we need to go back to the way things were before, you know, before 1946, where the creed and the Bible, the English Bible were in sync with one another. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. I, I think you're onto something there. And uh, until that happens, it does put us in this awkward situation, right? Where yeah. We obviously we want, Christians to read their Bibles. We want pastors to preach yeah. from their Bibles, but we're also a bit nervous that they're not, um, they're, they're, the translations they have, uh, if they're not accurate and if they're not conveying, not just accuracy, right, but conveying these mm-hmm. crucial Trinitarian truths, right. then that certainly, well, not only makes you worry, okay, are Christians then understanding everything they need to understand from what should be there in their Bible translations? But more than that, uh, from a bigger perspective, okay, then if they start being theologically minded, even historically minded, this is going to put them at odds unnecessarily with uh, one of the most, maybe the most important creed of the Christian faith, the Nicene Creed. Yeah. So I have this, this feeling, this fear, this uh, sense that um, most of these, you know, I don't have a problem with these modern translations. I'm not like one of these people that says you got to go back to the King James only and the NIV is apostate and all that. I don't, I don't have that same antipathy towards the modern English translations. Most of them are pretty accurate, Hmm. but 
the thing is, is that there's this feeling, this fear, this sense that too many of these English versions are being created in a um, in a context that's not from the church and for the church. In other words, who is making these translations and why are they making them? It doesn't seem to be the church making them and it doesn't seem that they're making them for the church. It seems often that they're just being made for the world in general, um, just so that anybody off the street could pick up a Bible or anybody in a hotel could pick up a Bible and understand it. That's a laudable goal, but maybe we need to get back to the church focused idea. And if we did, then that would help us to realize that we do have a big problem on our hands, What the church confesses the Nicene Creed. If, if a church does not, then they're not a true church, right? To be a Christian church, you have to confess the Nicene Creed. And if the church confesses the Nicene Creed, then the church needs to have a Bible that is made by the church and for the church that is consistent with the church's creed. Yeah. <laughs> so that's, that's my, my concern and my fear. I think, I think, so. uh, I think that type of transparency is needed today. Uh, and, and it might be painful for, for some, some people to hear, but uh, it's, it's a good type of honesty that will help us actually reform Mm-hmm. And like like you're just saying, I I uh, goodness that doing theology uh, for the church in the context of the church is is the way that theology and Bible translation mm-hmm. and biblical studies is the way that uh, it was done for many many centuries. Yep. I think it's actually quite modern that it's only been in, in recent days and yep. recent decades that we've seen more of a, a dichotomy between the two and uh, we're starting to to sense some of the unfortunate consequences of that. Um, It doesn't mean that if we return to that ancient model, that marriage that you're talking about, uh, it doesn't mean that we lessen our academic rigor. Uh, Hopefully people can sense by our conversation. No, we actually want to increase it. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But for what purpose, right? For what purpose? And and here we're we're trying to emphasize, let's get our Bible translations right, so that uh, not just our reading of Scripture, but our theology of Scripture actually uh, reflects um, true Nicene Trinitarian uh, theology uh, in a way that, as you as you mentioned, uh, preserves fidelity to orthodoxy itself right. if that's if if that is not done um it makes you wonder well have we have we strayed then have we drifted then from uh well what c.s lewis called mere christianity by which he didn't yeah. mean minimalism yeah. right. um, but but faithful orthodox right. uh, christianity itself hey this has been so this has been fun hasn't it yes um, it's, it's good to do this t- sort of thing, especially during COVID. Oh, absolutely. And uh, thank you so much for writing this book, uh, yeah. Simply Trinity. It's, it's going to be, uh, a real contribution that I think is going to help the church 
to to shore up our understanding of the Trinity and to make sure that we really are. Under, and it's not it's not enough just to say I believe in the Trinity in the sense of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. What does that mean? Yeah. And yeah. understanding eternal generation, I think, as you argue in the book, is not just an optional one way of understanding the Trinity. I think that you're arguing in the book that it's really the linchpin of it. Yeah. And that if you don't get that right, you're not going to understand the Trinity correctly. Yeah. So. Thank you so much. That uh, is, that's extremely encouraging. Uh, you know, as a, you know, this as an author, you know, you, you, you almost shed your own blood to, to, try you do. to put, put words on paper. You bleed yeah. all over it. And, and I know um, you've put so much research into it. And, you know, I can tell from reading that you have labored extensively, yeah. not superficially, but extensively in the church fathers. Yeah. And uh, I'm sure that you weren't able to use all of your research. Yeah. I know how it is. Many of it, <laughs> much of it will be left on the editing floor, but oh, painful, uh, you, isn't it? so painful. <laughs> thank you so much though, for doing that, because yeah. that's what we need. We really yeah. need that. And I really appreciated all of those quotes from, you call them the dream team yeah, the of dream your uh, <laughs> theologians that you're quoting. And it's very helpful. So. Yeah. Well, that's so encouraging to hear. Uh, and yeah, you know, I, I basically uh, immersed myself uh, I could tell. in the patristics and um, it, it was painful when I realized I have, I have enough here for probably uh, five books. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what am I going to do? Right. And so the, the, sometimes people don't realize this, but um, writing half of it is the painful process of editing. And, it uh, is. But in the end, uh, I'm so encouraged because, uh, I mean, really, my, my motive with this book is not for people even in the end game to read me but mm -hmm. the, maybe this can be a, a launching pad right to go and of course read the text that we've been talking about in scripture but do so with the church and for the church right um, and i think i think you're right i think that if if we can start a, whether it's translations um commentaries or theological works like this if we can start doing that together even uh, hopefully, Lord willing, we'll start to see the type of, of orthodox fidelity uh, mm -hmm. to, to a Nicene Trinitarianism that, that we know is needed. Hey, uh, I, I appreciate you taking time, uh, and we'll have to do this again sometime. Yeah, let's do it. Now you can fill up on theology each day by visiting credomag.com. There you will find the latest issues of Credo Magazine, with articles on key doctrines of the faith and regular video interviews with Dr. Matthew Barrett, where he answers some of the toughest theological questions of our day. Be sure to subscribe to Credo Podcasts to join the conversation, a conversation where doctrine matters.